Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's turn to the book of Amos. And in the book of Amos, we've been studying the last several Sundays. There are nine chapters in Amos. It's our plan to take a chapter a week until we complete this study. We're in chapter three today. There are 15 verses in chapter three. I will read all of them under the title, The Responsibility of Relationship. The Responsibility of Relationship, Amos 3.1 says, Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all of your iniquities. Do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion growl from his den unless he has captured something? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there's no bait in it? Does a trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Proclaim on the citadels in Ashdod and on the citadels in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressions in her midst. But they do not know how to do what is right, declares the Lord, these who hoard up violence and devastation in their citadels. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an enemy, even one surrounding the land, will pull down your strength from you and your citadels will be looted. Thus says the Lord, just as the shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel dwelling in Samaria be snatched away with the corner of the bed and the cover of a couch. Hear and testify against the house, O Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts. For on the day that I punish Israel's transgressions, I will also punish the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and they will fall to the ground. I also will smite the winter house along with the summer house. The houses of ivory will also perish and the great houses will come to an end, declares the Lord." May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Amos is coming to the nation of Israel in chapter 3 with the heart of his message. A proclamation of God's judgment against his chosen people. And by the way, Amos is just a messenger. He takes no pleasure in the message of judgment that he brings. Now you contrast that with Jonah, another one of the minor prophets, who had a message to the Ninevites who were not God's chosen people, they were the enemies of God's chosen people. And Jonah hated the Ninevites. And he must have been grinning from ear to ear when he said to them, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He longed to see God's judgment fall on those people. And in fact, he was angry with God when they repented and God did not judge them. Not so with Amos. He says here, in verse three that this judgment is not only against Israel but upon all the family which God brought up out of Egypt. He's including his own countrymen down in Judah in this judgment. And he's broken hearted about it. 
There's several things I want us to see from this text as we walk through it today. Number one is simply a reminder. And the first reminder is that Israel had a great privilege. They had a unique relationship with God. Look at verse 2. God says, You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, we know that God created all men, that every human being has dignity and worth because he's made in the image of God. But in his sovereignty, God chose to have a special and a unique relationship with one group of people through one man, a man by the name of Abram. We read that in Genesis chapter 12, as we will in a moment. And with that great privilege, of course, came great responsibility. The problem was that long ago, Israel had ceased to walk with God. They had gone their own way. They had turned aside. And so by means of reminding them, Amos uses a rhetorical advice of asking rapid fire questions to bring this to their attention. And he begins in verse three by saying, do two men walk together unless they have an appointment? A better translation is, do two men walk together unless they be in agreement? And of course the point can hardly be missed. Israel has ceased to walk in agreement with God. They've gone down a totally different path And in fact, Proverbs chapter three, five, and six says that God longs for us to walk in agreement with him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understandings. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. In fact, another one of God's prophets, a man by the name of Jeremiah, in the book that bears his name, chapter two, verse 13, really defines the twin sins of Israel in a succinct sentence. He says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What God wanted for the nation of Israel was to live in intimacy and fellowship with him, that they would worship he, the true God. He was the fountain of living waters from which they would get their blessings and their sustenance. But instead, they were enamored with the gods of their neighbors and they began to dig from the soil cisterns. Cisterns are nothing more than a hole in the ground to catch rainwater. Wasn't nearly as pure or as good as a flowing stream, but even those cisterns had a problem. They were flawed, they were broken, they were cracked, and the water would run out. And God accuses them of leaving him, the fountain of living waters, to hew out these cisterns. They had ceased, in other words, to walk with God. If you have an accountability partner or a close friend who hasn't seen you for a while who is a believer, they may begin their conversation with you with a question, are you walking with the Lord? Parents, you need to ask your children that when they return from college on weekends. Are you walking with the Lord? And we know what we're asking. We know you're a believer, but are you practicing your faith? Are you going to church? Are you reading your Bible? Are you spending time of prayer and fellowship with the Lord? Are you walking in intimacy with the Savior? There are some examples in the Bible of some men and women who walked closely with the Lord. One of my favorites is found in Genesis chapter 5, verse 21. We know almost nothing about the man Enoch, except that he was Noah's great-grandfather. He lived to be 365 years old. He was a godly man. The scripture says of Enoch that he walked with God and he was not, for the Lord took him (laughs) The implication is that he walked in such intimacy and fellowship with God every day of his life. One day he's perhaps out in the field and God says, you know what, just come on to heaven. (laughs) He never died. God just took him straight to heaven. He he was so close 
to the Lord. What a great thing to be said of someone is that they walk with God. Well, Israel was no longer walking with God, and it's the job of the prophet to point that out. And because they're no longer walking with God, there are some results. And the greatest result, of course, is God's judgment. Look at verse 4. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion growl from his den unless he has captured something? Again, Amos returns to this imagery of God as a lion. Back in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, The Lord roars from Zion. A lion was a fearsome creature and is today. And he roars when his prey is in his sights. He's about to pounce. And God says, I'm about to pounce in judgment on Israel. And he's warning them. Does a young lion growl unless he's captured? He says, you're, you're caught. And then he uses another imagery of, from wildlife, and that is of a bird. Verse 5, he said, does a bird fall into a trap on the ground where there's no bait in it? Does a trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing at all? The image there is of a fowler's net. This is the way they would catch birds. They would put some grain on the ground with a net spread out with a tripwire. And when the birds would, would come in, all of a sudden they would trip the, the wire and the net would spring up and close at the top around them and they would be captured and ultimately killed. And God says, this is what's happened. You, you fall into the bait of sin and the natural consequence of that is my judgment. But here is the tragedy. Verse 6, they failed to recognize God's benevolence and kindness in these warnings. They chose instead to ignore them. They chose to disbelieve that God would punish their sins. Verse 7, 6 says, if a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? The trumpet was blown by the watchman on the wall or the tower who would see the enemy coming and warn the people to get ready for it. But God's been blowing this trumpet through his prophets to get ready for judgment, but the people don't fear. Surely the Lord God does not do anything unless he reveals a secret counsel to his servants, the prophet. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? God has spoken and the time of judgment is at hand. But incredibly, most of the people willfully, stubbornly refuse to believe. They were presuming upon their privileges and blessings. They felt because they were God's chosen people, he would not judge them. Remember I said that the key to understanding Roman, uh, Amos is Romans 2.11. There is no partiality with God. That is when it comes to judgment, he has to judge all sin. They misunderstood their place of privilege and they had forgotten their responsibility and their relationship. If you'll hold your place there in Amos, let's turn to that verse I mentioned earlier, Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis chapter 12, God calls this man Abram, who was a descendant of Noah's son Shem. He was living in a pagan land called Ur of the Chaldees. And this is what God said to this man Abram. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. Now notice what God's going to do. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
God's plan for the nation of Israel was that they would be a channel, a conduit, a pipeline through which he would bless the nations of the world. But instead, they had isolated themselves and become not a conduit or a channel, but a reservoir. And they were heaping up God's blessings year after year, generation and generation, with no intention of blessing others. Instead, they began to view others as fodder for the flames of hell, less than them. And this is the same thing that was going on in Jesus' day, you recall, with the Pharisees. The thing that the Pharisees stumbled over time and time again with the gospel is that God would require them to humble themselves and repent just like he did a Gentile. And Paul said that's the stumbling block that they can't get around. What a, what a tragedy. But God is gracious. He's slow to anger. And verse 7 and 8 back in Amos 3 says this, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. Amos was just one of many prophets that God had sent in and around this time, warning the people to get ready for judgment. And today, God has sent his warnings in the form of his word, right? We have a closed canon of scripture, but everything the Lord wants us to know about his nature and about his plan is revealed there. He's not silent in his sovereignty. He has chosen to tell us what he's going to do. Then the fourth thing we see here is, is God's actual judgment. Verse 9, proclaim on the citadels in Ashdod and on the citadels in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressions in her midst. Now, here's one of the great paradoxes of the Old Testament. God often used sinners more sinful than his own people to punish his people. Did you catch that? God often used sinners more sinful than Israel to punish Israel. Now, ultimately, God punished their sin as well, but sometimes he would use their enemies. Now, don't miss the point here. Who is the one who's bringing judgment? Who is the lion in this metaphor? It is the Lord, right? But the Lord is so sovereign that he uses human means oftentimes to execute his will, and the means that he used in this case were their enemies. But first he calls their enemies to come up to the ridge overlooking down into Israel and, and agree with God that Israel deserves judgment. Now these were sinful people, but even they would look at Israel and say, look, we don't claim to know God. It's one thing when a person doesn't claim to be a Christian, acts like a pagan. By the way, we should not expect lost people to act like saved people, but we should expect saved people to act like saved people. And here you have God's people acting as bad or worse. And the implication is from Egypt and Ashdod, look, you people claim to know God. You have his law right there. Even we know about it. We know of his attributes and his greatness. You claim to know him, but you live like us. And remember, what were the sins that God accused them of? Well, here he says of violence and oppression. It's similar to what he says back in chapter 2. Where he says, verse 6, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they sell the righteous for money. They were perverting justice. They were consorting to prostitutes, sexual immorality. They had false worship and insincere and hypocritical worship practices. So what's God going to do about it? Well, he's going to take care of those things. Verse 11 says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, an enemy, even one surrounding the land will pull down your strength from you 
and your citadels will be looted. Now Israel had comforted herself by building fortified cities around its perimeter. And so remember that their enemies were sort of on the wane and they were recapturing some of those territories they had lost in previous battles. And so they thought our military might has never been greater. We don't have anything to fear. And what do they do? God takes away those fortifications. He pulls down those fortified cities through their enemies so they no longer have any strength. But that's not all he does. Verse 12 says, thus says the Lord, just as a shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel dwelling in Samaria be snatched away. Now you know this was fulfilled when God sent the Assyrians to capture Israel and take them away into captivity. And he left a remnant there to give testimony. In the ancient world, when a shepherd was hired to watch over someone else's sheep, occasionally, because it was over a large area and there were lots of predatory animals, a wolf, a lion, a bear would grab one of these sheep and steal it away and a good shepherd would chase after it. Oftentimes it was too late when he caught up to the animal, but, but he would take anything he could find, a corner of an ear or a leg, and he would bring it back to the owner to say, look, I didn't sell this lamb and keep the money. It, it was a predator that got it. Well, God says that's what he's going to do. He's going to thoroughly destroy Israel, but he's going to leave this little remnant as testimony that God did it. What a terrible picture. But, but he's going to do something very specific, he says, in verse 3, uh, excuse me, verse 13, he says, Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the Lord of hosts. For on that day I will punish Israel's transgressions. I will punish the altars of Bethel. Remember one of the great sins of Israel is that they had turned to false gods. This is what Jeremiah meant by those broken cisterns, false systems of worship. And right alongside the worship of the true God, they were setting up these shrines and temples to these false gods like Molech. And they were doing it in cities like Bethel. By the name of the city, the city Bethel means the house of God. Remember, this was the place that Jacob had his encounter with God. And it was a holy place, but they had profaned this holy place with their false worship practices. And what's God's going to do? He's going to punish the altars of Bethel. He's going to pull them down. He's going to saw off the horns of the altar. That was where a person that was in trouble would come for safe haven. But he says there's no longer going to be safe haven in the house of God. There's going to be nowhere to hide. Verse 15 says, I will also smite the winter house together with the summer house. One of the great sins of Israel at this time was materialism. They were joining house to house, even as the poor were starving to death. And the rich were getting richer on the backs of the poor. And God noticed it. And he says, I'm going to take that which you have trusted in your wealth. And I'm going to pound it to rubble. And so he did. These houses and these places of worship were symbols of their rebellion against God. Now what in the world could this possibly have to say to us today? I think a lot. I think it has something to say very specifically to God's churches. You remember in the book of Revelation, and you might want to turn there with me, Revelation chapter 3. The first three chapters of Revelation are the retelling of a vision that God gave the Apostle John. And in that vision, he saw the Lord Jesus in his resurrected body in a beautiful form. And he was moving in and out of the seven golden candlesticks. 
And you remember that the seven golden candlesticks were the churches of Asia Minor. And he has a message for each of these churches that John is to convey. To some of the churches, he gave them commendation. Attaboys. He says, I, I see what you're doing. You're facing persecution. Hang in there. You're doing great. To some of them, he has nothing but rebuke that they have turned aside from the Lord and he's calling them back under threat of punishment. For others, he has a mixture of commendation and, and rebuke. But the one that always sticks out to me is in chapter 3, verse 14, the church at Laodicea. And this is the message to the church at Laodicea. He says, to the angel of the church, that's the pastor, in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. This is a message from Jesus' lips to their ears. I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, I've become wealthy, I have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you might see. Now hear this, mark this in your Bible. He's speaking to the church. He's not speaking to lost people. He's speaking to a true church. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Right? We said last week, if you're a parent, and your child is doing something dangerous and stupid, you're going to discipline them, right? You're going to warn them. Here's Jesus warning the church at Laodicea to return to their first love. He says, I reprove and discipline those I love, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and will dine with him and he with me. Probably the most misunderstood and poorly preached verse in all the Bible. You have heard it probably all your life as an evangelistic text, right? Jesus is standing outside of the lost person's heart, knocking like a FedEx guy, hoping somebody's home. Somebody, please answer the door. That's not at all what it's saying. This is the sovereign Lord who has a relationship with someone he has redeemed and they've gone astray from him. And he's calling them back to intimacy. He's standing, knocking, come to me and I will sup, the King James says. I'll sit down and have dinner with you. You have sit down and have dinner with somebody you're close with, right? You have intimate fellowship. But the church at Laodicea had been enamored by their wealth and by the things of the world and the trinkets and the baubles of life. And Jesus says, turn away, else I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. He's not saying he's going to take away their salvation. He says, I'm going to remove their candlestick. I'm going to take away their ability to represent me in the world. And if you are a Christian and you're part of a true church, that ought to scare you to death. The possibility that the Lord could set you aside on the shelf because of unrepentant sin and that he will cease to use you for his glory. We don't have to fear that he'll take our salvation. Romans 8 1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is discipline. There is chastening. Those the Lord loves, he disciplines. 
Now there's some takeaways here, some warnings for the church. Number one, don't presume on God's grace. That was the mistake of Israel. Because he did not send judgment for 180 years, they presumed he never would. Some of us as Christians know that uh, there was a time in our life where we hungered after righteousness. We couldn't wait to read our Bible in the morning. We couldn't wait to get to church on Sunday and be around other Christians. We couldn't wait to hear a fresh word from the Lord. But over time, by getting off track just a little bit, we found ourselves over years far off path. There was a lady this year who had a lifelong dream of hiking the Appalachian Trail. You might have read her story. And she was brave and unafraid and she went by herself and, and she got off the path just for a little while thinking she could quickly get back on. But quickly she got disoriented in the undergrowth of the Smoky Mountains there. And she thought she was walking back towards the trail, but it was too late when she discovered she was going in the wrong direction. And they found her six months later, her body. And that's a great warning to the church. By getting off just a few degrees from the Lord's path over a long period of time, we, found, we find ourselves where we never thought we would be. That can happen to an individual Christian. That can happen to a church. So we dare not presume upon God's grace. We need to heed His warnings to continually come back to fellowship with Him. Don't presume upon His grace. Secondly, don't ignore His gracious warnings. When the Lord warns us, He's not doing so because He hates us. He's doing so because He loves us. Adrian Rogers used to say of the Ten Commandments, when God says, thou shalt not do something, He's saying, warning, stay away, hot, don't touch. And when He says, thou shalt do something, He's saying, help yourself to happiness. Walk with God. Do it His way. And then finally, learn from the mistakes of others. Paul says these things in the Old Testament were written down for our benefit. I take it that we don't make the same mistakes. Don't make the same mistakes of Israel. Don't make the same mistakes as Judah. Don't chafe under the chastening hand of the Lord. Receive it as a father's kind rebuke. Come back to him. There may be a person here today, or more than one, and you're like the person I described earlier. When you were saved, you were on fire for the Lord and you loved his people. But as life has gone on, you've begun to chase money. Maybe you've begun to chase entertainment or a vacation home or whatever that bauble is that distracts you. I, I was talked to someone yesterday. I, I say it again. I think the greatest and most effective strategy Satan has in Keller, Texas is distraction. He keeps us occupied with things that ultimately do not matter. It's not overt sin. There's that always. But it's plain keep away with our affections so that we're like a cat chasing a ball of string and the, and the clock runs out and we've wasted our life. There's a warning not to do that. Heed the warnings God gives you from his word and learn the lessons of Israel. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path. Walk with the Lord as Enoch walked with the Lord. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, Lord, we are grateful for your word because it is a strong reminder that you are sovereign. Anytime there is calamity in the world, it's because you allowed it or you caused it. And so Lord, when we see stories on the news, help us not say, well, that's for other people. Jesus says it's a warning to all of us, unless we repent, we'll all likewise perish. Father, you are a benevolent and a merciful and long-suffering God, but there will come a day, according to your word, where the opportunity and the day of grace will be over. And we don't know when that day will be. Father, help us to be ready. Lord, we pray you'd find every Christian at First Baptist Keller serving you faithfully, walking close to you when we're called home or when Jesus returns for his church. That's my prayer through his name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.